Welcome to Technovation. I'm your host, Peter High. My guest today is Jeff Nimelt, the former chairman and chief executive officer of General Electric. He's also the author of the new book, Hot Seat, which covers his tenure at GE with great candor. Currently, Jeff serves as a venture partner at New Enterprise Associates, a global venture capital and private equity firm. In this interview, we discuss Jeff's experience growing up professionally at GE, his relationship with his predecessor, the legendary CEO, Jack Welsh, and Jeff's story ascending to the CEO role. We discuss why Jeff decided to write the book about his time at GE, two things he would have done differently if he'd had the chance to do them over again, and the digital push he made as a CEO. Lastly, we discuss what Jeff misses most about his time at GE, his views on the global economy going forward, his advice to younger individuals at the beginning of their careers, and a variety of other topics. If you enjoy Technovation, please consider reading my book, Getting to Nimble, How to Transform Your Company into a Digital Leader. The book is now available on Amazon. As a special offer to our CXO listeners, if you purchase 50 or more books for your team, I'd be happy to join your team for a group discussion on it. To learn more, write us at info at or visit gettingtonimble.com to learn more. And now for a word from our partner, Aptio. Digital transformation is a journey, not a destination. Technology decisions teams make today determines the success of tomorrow. That's why Aptio is dedicated to helping companies harness the power of trusted, actionable insights. It's called technology business management, and more than 60% of the Fortune 100 are already using it to speed their innovation. Learn more about how Aptio can help you connect your technology decisions to better business outcomes. Visit Aptio.com. Jeff Immelt, thank you so much for joining me on Technovation today. It's uh, great to speak with you. Thanks, Peter. It's great to be with you. It's great to great to see you. I appreciate it. I really appreciate it. Well, uh, Jeff, um, people will certainly know you best as uh, a 16-year chief executive officer and former chairman of General Electric. Um, and I thought we'd begin at the beginning of your time at GE. I was just having a conversation earlier today with a group of technology executives about there are certain companies that are talent factories. It seems like as you meet people at, at co- companies around the world, there are some that so many of them seem to come from. And GE certainly is, I mean, arguably perhaps the best of those. Uh, the number of CEOs and chiefs of various stripes who at one point spent time at GE is just remarkably high and broad. And I wonder if you could take a moment and talk a bit about your own kind of early years and, and uh, mid-career, you know, mid-career years, the 1980s and 1990s, what it was like to grow up professionally within GE. Yeah, so I, uh, you know, I graduated from business school in 1982, and I wanted to be, I didn't want to be a consultant or a banker. I wanted to kind of go to work and learn how to be a manager. I thought I'd go to work for GE for maybe five years and kind of learn a trade, you know, learn to learn something, learn, be, learn to be good at something. And those five years turned out to be 35 years, really. <laughs> now, I would say, you know, Jack was good at a lot of different things. But one of the things he was an early, he was an early kind of advocate of human resources and professional development, you, you know, up until like 1980, most HR people came out of the union relations field. And Jack was all about professional talent. And he, he got there before almost anybody else. So, so Peter, in many ways, I, I kind of tripped into a company and a CEO who was really willing to invest in people, uh, uh, develop talent, take risks on people. And, and so, in many ways, I was just a recipient and was very lucky. I, my first business was GE Plastics, and I was a 
sales and marketing person and the business was growing rapidly and we had a lot of success. And then in like 1988 or something like that, the phone rings and my, my assistant says, uh, Jack, somebody that said he's Jack Welch is on the phone. And I thought it was just a joke or something. So I answer the phone and he says, you know, you're going to appliances on Monday. You know, I want you to run the service business. And we were at a big product recall. And, and uh, so I went, you know, veered over to, to do that. And I was 32 or 33 years old and I had 7,000 people uh, working for me in the middle of a product recall. And I was, it was a horrible time for the business. And I ended up in the boardroom once a month for maybe 18 months, which was worked out okay for me, but didn't work out okay for everybody. And so I just, I just got noticed early. And then I went back and ran the plastics business in uh, the early part of the nineties. And then from there went to uh, G healthcare. So, you know, I had kind of a, a background as a conglomerate. I, I lived in a lot of different places. I moved around, but you know, I, I think Jack was just one of those guys that would pull down into the organization, uh, reach people up and valued talent, you know, went out of his way to kind of value talent. So I think that's, you know, I was the beneficiary during those 20 years. That's so interesting. And I, in many ways, it almost sounds like you, you got a business degree uh, and you learn the theory of business. And then you join this conglomerate that allowed you to see so many different parts. You, you mentioned just there several different industries, which of course, a company like GE can afford somebody the opportunity to work in healthcare or you know, to work in plastics or uh, to get into, involved in financial services during that time as well, perhaps, and, and stay within the same company. The diversity of experiences one can have it's you know you're 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 seeing the world uh, with with uh, within a single entity. It's really a remarkable opportunity that way. And I think Peter gave you confidence. You know when you go you know when you go from plastics to appliances and you live to tell the story, you're just a little bit more confident because you say, hey, I can go into a foreign place and do well. And then so so I think that just naturally in a conglomerate. And then the other thing that uh, I thought Jack was really good at was. You know, teaching you how to instrument a business, like what metrics matter, how do you how do you get people aligned against metrics, how do you motivate people, things like that. So, yeah, I mean, it was just it was just a great uh, a great education. And you you mentioned Jack Welsh, of course, uh, one of the legendary uh, CEOs of any company, certainly of GE. Uh, talk a bit about that relationship. You started to mention uh, when he pulled into the organization and 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 started to bring you along. Uh, obviously, that was a very important relationship for you um, as the person who would succeed him. Um, talk a little bit about the the early days of that relationship and how that was forged, please. Yeah, look, I mean, I think it's, you know, on one hand, um, Jack could be super intimidating. You, you know, it wasn't like he was anybody's mentor just because there's just so much power differentiation between him and everybody else in the company. But he was also really... Uh, uh, you know, he was just, he made it fun. He made, he made work interesting and fun. He was tough for sure. And I got, I got reamed out by him more than once, but I think in his heart, he really wanted people to be successful. Um, you know, relatively early on, probably in my early thirties, you know, I, I got to know him and he got to know me. Uh, he almost fired me in 1994. So I, I was like, I was in the uh, penalty box for maybe two years. Uh, you know, we had like a, Peter, we had a kickoff meeting in Florida and and he sought me out this year and grabbed me 
and said, you know what? You did the worst job of anybody in the company. <laughs> And, you know, I was talking to some friends, they all disappeared and I'm there by <laughs> myself. Uh, but, you know, I never really felt it to be harsh. I, 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 I was motivated. I, I, I liked, I, I thought he was really curious about things. And so, you know, it, it was just a natural kind of way to, to, you know, he was just a really fun guy uh, to work with. You know, it's not for everybody, but, but I liked it. And I never really... You know, he kind of cultivated the hard ass neutron jack. That's never the that was never the person I saw, right? I in fact I, you know, I mean it doesn't matter today, but in retrospect, I think in some ways he allowed things to be cultivated about him that really didn't capture how good he really was at a number of different uh, settings. So yeah, look, I had I had great affection for working with him, and uh, I think most of us felt the same way. At what point did you learn that you were in the succession plan to potentially succeed him? You know, you're going to laugh. People that listen to you, or you're going to laugh when you hear this. But you know, like, like I never really thought about it until it came, and so probably not until maybe 1998 or 1999 did I really think about it. I never planned on it. I always felt like I could be CEO of something. Maybe you know, when I was in my late 30s or 40, but I didn't know about. If I could do GE, it's, it's so much luck and timing are involved. But, you know, to a certain extent, we all kind of did our work and, you know, Jack was the brand. So he didn't really, he didn't really like the first board meeting I'd ever been to was after I'd been named CEO. <laughs> like oh. I tell people that story and they say, no way. And I say, yeah, no, that's really, that's a true story. Right. So it was just a different day. So I, I, I kind of like we all kind of did our own thing. We met at, at meetings and things like that. And then probably, you know, by 1999, the drum beats were very uh, strong. And then by 2000, the early part of 2000, he basically said to the three of us, um, if you don't get the top, the top job, you're going to have to leave. And I, you know, that really like, just like, I, I couldn't even breathe. I said, you're kidding me, really? So, so that was when it really became serious. That was maybe March of 2000. And then, you know, it kind of played out the rest of that year. But yeah, it was just, it was just, uh, I, I think it was one of those things where you just did, did your work, you did your best, you never thought about who was going to be next. And just, I just felt like it would all take care of itself as time went on. And that's I, I I've heard you you tell the uh, parts of that story before, Jeff. And and to those who don't know you very well, it would seem almost impossible not to be thinking of the politics of something like this, and and you know really kind of working every angle. Uh, I mean, GE, the arguably the most famous company on on the on the planet at that time, um, you know, and the the prospects of running it. Uh, it's it's amazing to think that this was not something that you weren't you know, uh, thinking like Machiavelli uh, in, in, in plotting your pathway to the top. Yeah, I never really did. You know, I, I remember like in May of 2000, May or June, we had a quarterly operating review meeting with all the CEOs of businesses. And I had missed a G Capital board meeting like the week before because I'd been in Malaysia. I'd been in Asia. And Jack came over to me, you know, during a, a break and just chewed my ass out. And he said, look, you're you shouldn't be gone from meetings like that. It's disrespectful. You know what the stakes are, blah, blah, blah. 
And I said, Jack, really, look, I'd rather be with customers right now than in that meeting. <laughs> you know? And he got kind of a little smile on his face and said, yeah, I know, I know, but just don't do it again, right? <laughs> so it was just like that kind of, uh, it just, you know, kind of a weird time. And, you know, his star was ascending for sure. Like he was just, he was the most famous business person really in the world at that time. So, you know, we were just kind of, you know, bit players in the show, to be honest with you, Peter. You know, and, and and the process would go the way the process went. That's 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 really at the end of the day, that's what we all knew. I mean, he he was it, the company was so associated with him, and as you point out, I mean, it's rather telling that it was so late in this in the game that you made it to your first board meeting. Was there, did you get the sense there was part of him that felt like he was going to be there forever? I mean, was he in a company that was, please. I never never sensed that, really. I I never sensed that. It just was like, it was just such a different time. Yeah. He was, he was, you know, kind of like on top of his game. And I wouldn't even say Imperial CEO, because look, he worked hard every day. You know, he was, he was a worker, right? But it just was like, you know, meant to be. And I, you know, I, I remember going to like my first board meeting. So I, I was named in like November of, of 2000. And my first board meeting was in December. And, you know, I remember saying to him, okay, like, what do we do in these board meetings? Show me the ropes. So, we, you know, but we had from uh, December of 2000 till September, of two, or August of 2001, where we could kind of spent time together and we talked, you know, I, I, that was really an eight month period where I, I really had the chance to pick his brain and, you know, kind of hear how he did things and why he did things. And that was a, that was a good experience as well. Yeah. Interesting. And there, there's the story that's been told of, uh, were you golfing in Chicago about the time that you were succeeding him? And somebody asked you, I, I, you should tell the story better than I can. Cause of course you were there. I would go every year to play with some friends and this was in August, and basically uh, two weeks later, I was going to be—he was going to retire. I was going to become CEO. So I'm in the locker room. And a member was in there, and he said, "You know, you don't look familiar to me." And I said, "No, I'm I'm the guest of these guys." He says, "He says, well, what do you do?" And I said, well, "I live in uh, Connecticut, and I work at GE." And he says, "Oh, GE, God, I feel sorry for that poor son of a bitch that's going to take well too long." <laughs> so I walk out of the locker room into the first tee and. All the guys are laughing, and and so it was just like one of those one of those things. Was it was there part of you that kind of uh, agreed with him? I mean, I, I you know the 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 bar was so incredibly high. Uh, what was that? What were you thinking in those early stages? Forget the fact that the second day on the job, if I recall correctly, was nine eleven. So there were all kinds of complexities you were managing in the early stages of this. But the the, the that thought process did it did, did it feel like a mixed blessing in any way? Oh, look, I'd be lying if I didn't say that when you follow a really famous person, it's complicated, right? I, I, I think anybody that wouldn't answer the question that way is just not telling the truth. It, I knew I wanted to run the company a different way. And, you know, you, you just kind of trip into the 9-11 tragedy and the Enron bankruptcy. And really by, you know, by the beginning of 2001, the world was just a very different place. It was just a really different place. And I would say, you know, it was, you know, it kind of went from, you know, uh, GE being a trust me company to we're in the crosshairs of the New York Times and bondholders and things like that. And that took three months, you know, in other words, there was no, 
honeymoon at all. There was no there was no warm up time at all. You you just kind of went from a standing start to being right in the middle of the action right away. Mm-hmm. Yeah, interesting. And you, you recently uh, published a, a book, Hot Seat: What I Learned Leading a Great American Company, which details your time as as uh, as chief executive officer of GE. And um, you offer criticism of several of your former colleagues, but truly the harshest criticism in the book is for yourself. Uh, in fact, you begin the book very early in the book. I'm quoting you. It's, you noted, my tenure had ended badly. My legacy was at best controversial. Uh, controversial excuse me. Maybe it would be better not to write a book at all. Uh, why did you elect to write a book? So, you know, I... I I took my time. I retired in 2017. We moved to California. I, I really had time to think and reflect on what I would have done differently, what I learned. Uh, you know, I, I teach a class, a, a class at Business School at Stanford, but I, I didn't do this, you know, carelessly. You know, Peter, I the G store is a complicated one, and I haven't been happy at all. It's been it's been told truthfully or completely over the last three or four years. So I, I felt like I owed it to my colleagues, really, to kind of get a more complete story out there, a more complete truth, if you will. I also think, you know, we lived through, we've lived through such an incredible 20 years of crisis and volatility that some of the things we learned together, some of the, the events we went through would be beneficial to other people. I hired a co-writer in the second half of 2018. She interviewed 75 people that were kind of colleagues and investors and people from around. So we basically got a chance to kind of get it, the story grounded and, and facts and memories. Uh, I had eight people write it with me, you know, kind of chapter by chapter. They would review it to just make sure I got the context and the content as, as right as it possibly can be. So that's, you know, that's what I did. And, and to your point, you know, I was, I was harsher on myself than anybody else. Mm-hmm. And the only times when I was harsh on other people was when the truth just needed to be told so that, so that the vast majority of people in GE could give it a broader and deeper understanding. And, and that's kind of the book, uh, the book I wrote, I wrote, it doesn't lecture, it's kind of storytelling and, uh, I'm sure some people think it's defensive, but I didn't really write it to defend myself. I wrote it because, you know, one of the things I say, Peter, is truth equals facts plus context, right? So sometimes the facts are out there, but no context. Sometimes the facts were wrong. And I wanted to get the facts and the context right so people could see, you know, kind of what the environment and what the actions were really all about. Yeah. You call it a few things that that were regrets from your tenure. You talk about the, the 2014 purchase of of Alstom's uh, power and grid business, uh, for example. Uh, you talked about how you didn't get as much uh, value out of G Capital as you could have. Is another thing that you've said. Um, I, 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 I forgive me, but I'd love to have you maybe reflect a little bit on on some of those. Obviously, given the, the the length of your tenure and the number of decisions that you made, obviously some mistakes would be made. Uh, and, and obviously, they're going to be done so uh, with the white, the bright white lights of, of Wall Street and the, the public watching you. Uh, talk, talk a bit about uh, some of these steps that you might have done differently, if you don't mind. So I, I'm going to start the answer. You know, I, I, I take two pages at the end of chapter 11. So you're 300 pages in the book to say, oh, by the way, 
in my tenure, the company earned $300 billion. We generated this much cash. It was more than 110 years combined. We were number one. I try to put the ledger at least on one side. There are some good things that happened, but there clearly are things I would have done differently. Let me let me segment both of them. I, I think Alstom is a good case of acquisitions. You know, so for acquisitions are hard to do, and for them to work, you have to have a kind of a market thesis. You you have to sometimes be lucky on timing, and you you have to have a team that's ready to execute. In the case of Alstom, we had a market thesis. Our timing wasn't very good, and the team wasn't ready to execute. So when you don't have two other three things. It just didn't work. And, and so, you know, the company had a lot going on at that time, including me leaving and, you know, lots of stuff on the board's plate. And so as a result, I basically say in the book, I wouldn't have done it over again, not for strategic reasons, but really because we just weren't ready to execute in the way that I felt like we should. And at the end of the book, I, I kind of talk about four or five things that I, I really would have done over again. And one of them I talk about is, the whole notion of how we unwound G capital, uh, what was at stake, and and you know we just never we we kind of did it incrementally over maybe a decade. Uh, at the end of the day, we didn't get as much value as we could have or should have out of such a good business, such a good set of businesses, and a great team. And I kind of say, you know, at some point, I should have just backed away, taken a more holistic view, maybe brought in. A big private equity firm like TPG or KKR or something like that, and just said, "Hey, let's do it together. Help me think it through." But uh, you know, I, I didn't go down that path. So those those are two that I that I said I, I clearly would have done differently had I, had I had the chance to do them over again. You also uh, led a, a major push into digital business uh, within the organization. Um, there was a lot, a lot of headlines. I remember a New York Times story talking about the you know 125 year old startup or something like that. Um, talk a bit about the impetus there and and um, how you would uh, evaluate the efficacy of those moves. Yeah, so you know, remember now, uh, you know, for your listeners and viewers, I, I now have spent the last three or four years in Silicon Valley, so I have a pretty good perspective on both sides of the story. I think we were a little early. So the, the business model of GE was having a huge installed base of valuable assets and then getting the most value out of those assets over time with our investors and part, or with our customers and, and for our, ourselves, for our company, for our investors. And so I, I never viewed like, you know, when, when we first started the initiative, it wasn't really about you know, words like digital transformation or all that stuff, none of those existed. We, we started in 2009. Mm -hmm. All we were trying to do was getting information off the assets, be able to model it in an effective way to improve performance for our customers. So we really had a pure uh, kind of strategy. We were early, so there weren't a lot of tools that were developed at that time for us to use. So we had to do a lot of the work internally. So we we set up a, a company, we set up a business in California. We recruited people from the outside. We invested. We changed the business model. Um, you know, we we really kind of went full out to to uh, to kind of be uh, positioned to catch this wave, whether you call it industrial internet or IoT or things like that. And I think even today, the company still benefits from some of the stuff we started. But I remember in about, so basically we started in 2009. I remember about 2013 or 14, 
I went to see Tom Siebel, who was a great tech entrepreneur, started a company called, uh, in those days it was called C3IoT, but now it's C3AI. And Tom said, you know, so walking to the car in California and he said, you know, Jeff, this is exactly the right thing to do. It's amazing that you thought of it. Incredible, right? Congrats. Your company's never going to succeed. <laughs> your, your company's never going to let you succeed. You don't have the right culture. You're not going to be able to get to where you need to get to. And to a certain extent, Tom was right. And, you know, he took his company public last year and they've had a market cap somewhere between 10 and $15 billion, right? So I guess a long-winded story to say, I think we were right on the, on the concept. We were maybe a little bit early. We probably should have taken on a partner, but it's exactly right. You know, in other words, this is going to happen. Uh, if we don't do, if we didn't do it, some other people would. The tools are better today than they were in the past. But it's one of those things that I've never really regretted. I, I didn't really call it a regret in the book. It's just one of those things where I just wish we would have made more progress after I left. I, I was the biggest champion. And I wish we had made more progress after we left, but other people are doing it today. And it's a big staple of the industrial world is how they're going to, you know, grab onto this as a, as a strategy. Yeah. What, what are some of the things you miss most about your, your time at GE now, four years uh, since you've departed the company? What, what are the things that, that you can continue to reflect upon from your tenure? Yeah. I, I mean, I think this is going to be um, always going to sound uh, trivial, but I, I, I really love the people. I love the people I worked with. And this is goes from you know the front lines all the way to the boardroom. I, I I had a chance to work with really dedicated, remarkable people, and together we were able to do uh, some really great things. You know, one of the one of the things I'm always proud of is just I think in our time we were the best global company. We were the most effective global company of any other multinational or of any company in the world. We had a, a, a great presence in. China and India and Germany and Middle East and Africa and all over the world and, and just the ability to kind of see people grow and, and, and get people to kind of in every corner of the world embrace the company, embrace our values, uh, work hard to help us be successful. You know, that's tremendously uh, rewarding. And then I always marvel at the products we made, you know, jet engines and ultrasound and a 10 megawatt wind turbine and you know, you go down the list. I, I was always felt like we did things that were hard to do, and and those are that that's a rewarding uh, place to be. Yeah, yeah, very interesting. Uh, and what do you what do you think of the job that Larry Culp is doing now? You you I've heard you mention that you not only are a shareholder, but you've actually bought some more shares of uh, of GE. Um, talk a bit about what your successor's successor, yeah. how, how how he's doing. Yeah, look, I think uh, I, Larry's a very strong operator. That's what the company needed. I think the company's focused and really executed well through the COVID pandemic. And I bought more shares just because, you know, I'm a private citizen now, so I can't get in trouble. But you know, the aviation sector has gotten hit so hard. I think people are going to be surprised by how quickly that sector comes back. People want to travel again. They want to see people again. And so, you know, there always is, a, is an overcorrection to these industries. You know, I, I, I told people, Peter, the other day that, like, coming out of 9-11, so we, we had 9-11 and then SARS and the commercial aviation industry was really on its butt. And COVID's probably been worse, but it was really terrible in like 2003, 2004. You could have bought every company in the aviation supply chain for 10 cents on the dollar in 2003. We didn't do it. We should have, but we mm -hmm. didn't. 
Uh, private equity did it, and they made hundred billions of dollars of profit as they stepped in at that moment in time. And so I, I just think sometimes sectors get oversold, and that's a little bit the way I feel about aviation right now. Yeah, that's interesting. You talked about the the current uh, economic crisis, health crisis, a variety of crises that we're we're suffering through, uh, not only just in this country but around the world. Uh, what are your own reflections about? Uh, how quickly you think things will return to some degree of normalcy and the extent to which you'd care to offer any examples, what, what sort of normalcy, like how normal do you believe it will, will, will be in the foreseeable future? Yeah, that's it. Those are, you know, like to a certain extent, my, my answer to all that is I don't know, but yes, <laughs> you know, like I think there's a lot of pent up demand for a lot of different activities. I, I think you're going to see a, a reasonably robust, you know, as people can, can get vac- vaccinated and get back into stores and get back to work and, you know, start filling orders again. I think there's going to be a reasonably robust, let's say, economic environment in 2021. I I can't answer, you know, basically government and business are indistinguishable today. So, you know, with a $1.9 trillion kind of stimulus and, and debt greater than GDP, we're just as a country in a place that, We've never been before. I think it started in the financial crisis and and exists today where government intersects in every industry in a profound way. So government's our partner, whether we like it or not, or whether we're Republican or Democrat. Government's a part of your life going forward if you're a business person. So I think that's going to be more complicated as time goes on. I think the relationship with China, I worry about in that you know, there's just kind of no going back from the fact that China is going to be a massive economic force, the equal of the United States. So I think we're awfully naive as a country in terms of the way we view, you know, where and how China's going to move, right? There's there's all kinds of, I would say, military concerns, and I'm not that qualified to speak about that, but economically, Look, they're moving on all the advanced technologies. Their 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 reach is very global. They've got a plan, and so I just think that's another piece where you sit here and say to the people that are on your podcast or the people that are are viewing today, can anybody imagine like the two biggest economies in the world actually being not doing any trade with each other or not talking to each other? You know, it's just not a. I, I can't envision that as a good thing. Yeah. For the citizens of this country or the citizens of the world. So I worry about that. That's interesting. Are there places I, you mentioned before GE that the, the sun never set on, on GE's empire? You, you had businesses all around the world. You traveled uh, uh, extensively and were often met uh, like, like a head of state when you did. Uh, you know, now in reflecting further as well as, you know, continuing to analyze uh, geopolitics and the world economy, are there are there places you're particularly bullish on, not necessarily from an investment perspective, but that where you see kind of the momentum building in a positive direction uh, as to the way in which, uh, you know, the, the, those societies are being run and the, the business climate that's developing there? Yeah, look, I mean, again, I have to go back and kind of talk to, about China and India, which are mm-hmm. just, you know, for... People, you know, my daughter's age, they're just going to be big players in the in your world. I always think it's interesting to see the way that kind of resource-rich countries like those in the Middle East and Africa and Australia and Canada, how will those countries evolve, you know, as they transition their economies from being kind of, 
you know, raw material oriented or oil oriented to trying to be more diversified as time goes on. I think those, I think that's going to play out in a really interesting way. You know, Southern Asia, I think is, is, is just big populations of people that have lots of opportunities for growth in areas like healthcare and energy. And then I, you know, it's, it's always an interesting interplay with Europe. You know, I, I think particularly if you were in the tech world, you know, Europe is the regulatory superpower in the world. And so what are they going to do to kind of uh, stop big tech and, and add regulation, whether it's on privacy or cyber and things like that? So I just think there's lots of things that are going on that are different in the world. And the opportunity for American business people is to see it for themselves. You know, in other words, don't, don't trust the New York Times or the Wall Street Journal or CNBC if you want to go invest in Germany, go there yourself or have your team go there or listen to your team or, or find, you know, because what I've always found, particularly today, is that, you know, every country needs kind of a different strategy and you need to be able to discover what that is. Uh, people want to blame, you know, President Trump for nationalism. He didn't invent it. He just Americanized it. So nationalism is a big part of every country in the world right now. So how to navigate through that is um, is really key. But I hate to be sound like a broken record if you said you can only go to one country to see the future. I go to China. Sorry, yeah. sorry. I just have to. I just have to answer the question that way. Yeah, makes sense. It, 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 um, you now teach uh, among several things that you do teach at Stanford Business School, as you mentioned earlier, Jeff. And I, I, surely there are students uh, that you're teaching who are asking you for advice on industries they ought to go into or where they should be devoting their attention. Uh, curious what sort of guidance you provide to young people these days who are at the beginning of their careers uh, as to those areas that you think offer the best opportunities. Yeah, so maybe I give them, I give them kind of two, uh, uh, maybe three pieces of advice. One is try while you're young to have an appreciation for both the physical world and the digital world, because I think the best companies in the future are going to be able to combine elements of both. You know, Amazon maybe being the best example of a company that's actually very good physically, but also a very strong software company. So I try to give them that advice. Um, I, I really want them to kind of experience the world, right? So I, I particularly in Silicon Valley, you you tend to be trapped thinking that the only world that matters is kind of like San Francisco and surrounding areas, but the ability to kind of see the rest of the U S or the rest of the world, I think is really critically important. And then I give them advice. This is maybe the only lecturing I do to say, you know, good, good careers answer three questions, right? It's how fast can you learn? How much can you take, right? When you get punched in the nose, will you keep going? And how much can you give to others, right? So uh, answer those three questions, answer them every day, and you're going to be successful, right? In terms of industries, it's hard to pick, but the one industry that just is always going to be dominant, particularly if you're an American, is healthcare, right? So I, I think uh, in some way, shape, or form, probably one in three students at a school like that are going to go to work in healthcare over the arc of their career. Mm. Very interesting. Uh, talk a bit about uh, some of the other ways in which you're spending your time these days. Uh, you, you have sort of a portfolio of things that you're doing now that you don't have a, a full-time CEO job. Talk a bit more about where you're, you're devoting your time and attention. 
Yeah. So I, I wanted, when I retired, I wanted to go to work in venture. I wanted to work with small companies. I want to work with founders. I wanted really to think small again, to, to kind of get in at the inception and think our way through business problems and, and how to make progress. So I went to work for a venture capital firm called New Enterprise Associates in, in Menlo Park. I basically do maybe 60% healthcare and probably 40% either industrial automation or tech. I work with 10 or 15 companies, either with the CEO or on board or, or things like that, mainly private. And, uh, you know, that's really, you know, I kind of want to have like uh, be a player coach, right? Be, be able to uh, coach the team. But when, you know, when they're in a problem or they need something fixed, I can roll up my sleeves and be very helpful at that scale. So that's small, small companies, innovative companies, kind of player coach role, uh, really, really super uh, engaging and very fulfilling. Hmm. Very interesting. Um, I, I've had the opportunity to meet your brother, Steve Immelt, uh, who until not too too long ago was the chief executive officer of one of the largest law firms in the world, Hogan Lovells in Washington, D.C., where I happen to live. The two of you ran multi-billion dollar organizations. I'm curious, was there something about the way that you were raised that put you on a footing to each be CEOs of major companies? No, thanks for asking that question. You know, I love my brother. He's a great guy. Uh, my general counsels, when I would be chewing out our lawyers because they wouldn't let me do something I wanted to do. He would often remind me, you know, you remember you love a lawyer, your brother is a lawyer. So <laughs> give us more respect. Uh, look, I think we had a, a great upbringing in your hometown in Cincinnati. And I think our parents, our parents really gave us confidence that we could solve problems on our own. They, they showed us by example that, we needed to treat people with respect. And so we very much lived in a community and, and in a household where everybody, whoever, you know, was around us needed to be treated with respect. And, and they gave us, you know, uh, spared no expense to give us the tools to help us continue to learn and, and, and try to get better. And so I think we both benefited from uh, just having great parents living in a great community and, uh, and, and just, you know, feeling like we could do things, we could figure things out for ourselves, And, and, uh, you know, that's, that's just good luck. I mean, really, it's just, it's just good luck. Very, very well said. Well, Jeff Immelt, uh, your, your book is Hot Seat, What I Learned, Leading a Great American Company, certainly worth the read. And thank you so much for a stimulating conversation covering so many different facets of your fascinating career. Um, I really appreciate you taking time with me today. Thanks. Happy to do it. Uh, great to be with you. And uh, thanks for giving me the opportunity. Thanks for tuning in. Please join us on Monday for a special episode as Meta Strategies co-head of Research, Media, and Executive Network, Stephen Norton, interviews me about my book, Getting to Nimble.